Thanks, guys. Tim, alcoholic. Okay, we're on page 219. The vicious cycle. This story is uh, written by Jimmy Burwell. Jimmy Burwell is a, um, is a real character. Uh, he is instrumental in doing several things for the program, one of which is... You'll notice in steps 3 and 11, uh, God as we understood him, uh, he is responsible for having that added to those two steps um, because of his resistance, and we're going to see that in the text tonight, of his resistance towards any sort of spiritual gig. Uh, In addition to that, because he was resistant to it, uh, some of the founding members very early in the game, this is actually even before the big book was uh, 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 printed, completed, They tried to kick his ass out. And it was because he he didn't do the God thing. And they were trying to figure out, like, how could we, like, get rid of this guy but yet stay spiritual? And he said, he he trumped them. No no pun intended. He got them by saying, this is the traditions are written in 1950. But prior to the traditions being written, if we just turn back for one second to um, Roman numeral 14. XIV. XIV. This is forward to the first edition. XIV. So uh, they're giving him a hard time. They're thinking, you know, if you don't do the God thing, you really, you're not part of this, you know. And he says, really? So the the uh, the uh, text is written to some to some extent, and he takes this off the shelf and he reads second line. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. So, again, this is pre the traditions being written. And he says, did you guys mean that or not? And, uh, you know, ultimately they had to, uh, to eat their words. So he's responsible for third tradition being uh, highlighted they did drop the word honest when the tradition was written because there's a little bit of a debate like who who can define honest like oh yeah he's not honest you know you can't do that so it's your definition of whether you have a desire to stop drinking and the third and the 11th step and he was he was assisted in being a little bit um uh not being pulled into the religious uh, spiritual terminologies that uh, some of the people wanted. Uh, Fitz Mayo, uh, last week's uh, uh, big book author, definitely wanted it to sound like a Bible. Uh, Akron wanted it to sound like a Bible. Bill was like in the middle, and Hank Parkhurst and Jimmy Burwell, Hank Parkhurst, the unbeliever, he's the one, the stock certificate thing, wanted to pushed Bill to write the big book, um, wanted uh, it to sound like a almost like a college text like you know we're going to make this thing not too uh um uh uh, uh, easy for a lot of other people to swallow so here we go the vicious cycle how it finally broke a southerner's obstinacy and destined this salesman to start aa philadelphia so ultimately gets sober he's an he's the founder of aa philadelphia he's actually then becomes the co-founder of aa baltimore also so he's he's active down there he described himself later on as a militant agnosticism agnosticism he described himself as perpetrating militant agnosticism 
And uh, that meant he fought with everybody over the fact that, you know, you don't have to believe in God to do this thing. January 8, 1938. That was my D-Day, the place, Washington, D.C. This this last real merry-go-round had started the day before Christmas, and I had really accomplished a lot in those 14 days. First, my new wife, my new wife had walked out, bag, baggage, and furniture. Then the apartment landlord had thrown me out of the empty apartment. And the finish was the loss of another job. After a couple of days in a dollar ho- in dollar hotels and one night in the pokey, I finally landed on my mother's doorstep, shaking apart, with several days beard and, of course, broke as usual. Many of these same things had happened to me many times before, but this time they all descended together. For me, this was it. Progression, and he's hopeless. This is the bottom. This is the ingredient needed for him to, to, to come into a program. Here I was, 39 years old and a complete washout. Nothing had worked. Mother, m- mother would take me in only if I stayed locked in a small storeroom and gave her my clothes and shoes. We had played this game before. That is the way Jackie found me lying on a cot in my skivvies underwear with hot and cold sweats pounding heart and that awful itchy scratchiness all over somehow i had always managed to avoid dts i seriously doubt i ever would have asked for help but fitz again talking about fitz mayo last week's story our southern gentleman an old school friend of mine they grew up together in maryland had persuaded Jackie, this is Jackie Williams, this is uh, Fitz Mayo's sponsee. Uh, Jackie Williams was a chronic slipper, was not making it. But Fitz had a genius idea. How do we get people sober? All right, we send them to help somebody else. Right, this is the program. Sent Jackie to call on me. Had he come two or three days later, I think I would have thrown him out. But he hit when I was open for anything. There it is. Jackie arrived about 7 in the evening and talked until 3 a.m. I don't remember much of what he said, but I did realize that here was another guy exactly like me. He had been in the same laughing academies and the same jails, known the same loss of jobs, same frustration, same boredom, and the same loneliness. If anything, he had known all of them even better and more often than I. Yet, here he was, happy, relaxed, confident, and laughing. That night, for the first time in my life, I really let down my hair and admitted my general loneliness. There's honesty. There's the next step in in making this thing come together. Jackie told me about a group of fellows in New York of whom my old friend Fitz was one who had the same problem I had and who, by working together to help each other, were now not drinking and were happy like himself. He said something about God or a higher power, and I brushed that off. That was for the birds, not for me. Little more of our talk stayed in my memory, but I do now, I do know I slept the rest of that night, while before I had never known what a real night's sleep was. This was my introduction to this understanding fellowship, although it was to be more than a year before our society was to bear the name Alcoholics Anonymous. So remember, we didn't get the name until we titled the book. And then once we titled the book, we called the fellowship the same thing. 
All of us in AA know the tremendous happiness that is in our sobriety. That is our sobriety. No, I had it right the first time. But there are also tragedies. My sponsor, Jackie, was one of these. He brought in many of our original members, yet he himself could not make it and died of alcoholism. The lesson of his death still remains with me. Yet I often wonder what would have happened if somebody else had made that first call on me. So I always say that as long as I remember January 8th, that is how long I will remain sober. The age-old question in AA is, which came first, the neuroses or the alcoholism? I like to think I was fairly normal about alcohol before alcohol took over. My early life was spent in Baltimore. Uh, a little side note, and I don't know if I said it before, but uh, uh, he grew up with Fitz as, as a child. My early life was spent in Baltimore where my father was a physician and a grain merchant. My family lived in very prosperous circumstances, and while both my parents drank, sometimes too much, neither was an alcoholic. Father was a very well-integrated person, and while mother was high-strung and a bit selfish and demanding, our home life was reasonably harmonious. There were four of us children, and although both of my brothers later became alcoholic, One died of alcoholism. My sister has never taken a drink in her life. Until I was 13, I attended public schools with regular promotions and average grades. I have never shown any particular any particular talents, nor have I had any really frustration, frustrating ambitions. At 13, I was packed off to a very fine Protestant boarding school in Virginia, where I stayed four years graduating without any special achievements. In sports, I made the track and tennis teams. I got along well with the other boys and had a fairly large circle of acquaintances, but no intimate friends. I was never homesick and was always pretty self-sufficient. However, here I probably took my first step toward coming my coming alcoholism by developing a terrific aversion to all churches and established religions. At this school, we had Bible readings before each meal and church services four times on Sunday. And I became so rebellious at this that I swore I would never join or go to any church except for weddings or for funerals. Sounds like a resentment. At 17, I entered the university, really to satisfy my father, who wanted me to study medicine there as he had. That is where I had my first drink. And I still remember it for every first drink afterwards did exactly the same trick. I could feel it go right through every bit of my body and down to my very toes. But each drink after the first seemed to become less effective. And after three or four, they all seemed like water. I was never a hilarious drunk. The more I drank, the quieter I got. And the drunker I got, the harder I fought to stay sober. So... It is clear that I never had any fun without drinking. I would be the soberest seeming one in the crowd. And all of a sudden, I would be the drunkest. Even that first night, I blacked out, which leads me to believe that I was an alcoholic for my very first drink. The first year in college, I just got by in my studies. I majored in poker and drinking. 
I refused to join any fraternity as I wanted to be a freelance. And that year, my drinking was confined to one-night stands, once or twice a week. The second year, my drinking was more or less restricted to weekends. But I was nearly kicked out of out for scholastic failure. In the spring of 1917, in order to beat being fired from school, I became patriotic and joined the Army. I am one of the lads who came out of the service with a lower rank than when I went in. So he, because of uh, uh, this OTC we're going to see in the next, next line, which is uh, Officer Training Corps, he goes in as a sergeant and he comes out as a private. Uh, I had been to OTC the previous summer, so when I went into the Army as a sergeant, but I came out a private, and you really have to be unusual to do that. In the next two years, I washed more pans and peeled more potatoes than any other doughboy. In the Army, I became a periodic alcoholic, the periods always coming whenever I could make the opportunity. However, I did manage to keep out of the guardhouse. My last bout in the Army lasted from November 5 to 11, 1918. We heard by wireless on the 5th that the armistice would be signed the next day. This was a premature report. So I had a couple of cognacs to celebrate. Then I hopped a truck and went AWOL, absent without leave. My next conscious memory was in Bar-le-Duc, many miles from base. It was November 11, and the bells were ringing and the whistles blowing for the real armistice. There I was, unshaven, clothes torn and dirty, with no recollection of wandering all over France, but... Of course, a hero to the local French. Back at camp, all was forgiven because it was the end. I think it is interesting how he capital, he capital E'd end, because I think this is where he's making the decision that now he's crossed the line into, like, there's no hope. It's, I'm, uh, I am a confirmed alcoholic now. I'm, I'm screwed. But in the light of what I have since learned, I know I was a confirmed alcoholic at 19. With the war over and back in Baltimore with the folks, I had several small jobs for three years. And then I went to work soliciting as one of the first 10 employees of a new national finance company. What an opportunity. I shot to pieces there. This company now does a volume over $3 billion annually. Three years later at 25, I opened and operated their Philadelphia office and was earning more than I ever have since. I was the fair-haired boy, all right, but two years later I was blacklisted as an irresponsible drunk. It doesn't take long. My next job was in sales promotion for an oil company in Mississippi, where I promptly became high man and got lots of pats on the back. Then I turned two company cars over in a short time and bingo, fired again. Oddly enough, the big shot who fired me from this company was one of the first men I met when I later joined the New York AA group. And he's referring to Hank Parkhurst here, uh, who is, um, uh, was, his, uh, was an employer then and ultimately uh, turns out to be his uh, employer here, which we'll see in a second. He had also gone all the way through the ringer and had been dry two years when I saw him again. After the oil job blew up, I went back to Baltimore and mother, my first wife having said a permanent goodbye. 
Then came a sales job with a national tire company. I re- reorganized their city sales policy, and 18 months later, when I was 30, they offered me the branch managership. As part of this promotion, they sent me to their national convention in Atlantic City to tell the big wheels how I'd done it. At this time, I was holding what drinking I did down to weekends, but I hadn't had a drink at all in a month. I checked into my hotel room and then noticed a placard a placard uh, tucked under the glass on the bureau stating, there will be positively no drinking at this convention, signed by the president of the company. That did it. Who, me, the big shot, the only salesman invited to talk at the convention, the, male, the man who has... The man who was going to take over one of their biggest branches come Monday? I'll show him who was boss. No one in that company saw me again. Ten days later, I wired my resignation. As long as things were tough and the job a challenge, I could always manage to hold on pretty well. But as soon as I learned the combination, got the puzzle under control, and the boss to pat me on the back, I was gone again. Routine jobs bored, bored me, but I would take on the toughest one I could find and work day and night until I had it under control. Then it would become tedious and I'd lose all interest in it. I could never be bothered with the follow through and would invariably reward myself for all my efforts with that first drink. After the tire company came in the 30s, the depression and the downhill road in the eight years before aa found me i had over 40 jobs selling and traveling one thing after another and the same old routine i'd work like mad for three or four weeks without a single drink save my money pay a few bills and then reward myself with alcohol then i'd be broke again hiding out in cheap hotels all over the country having one night jail stands here and there, and always that horrible feeling, what's the use? Nothing is worthwhile. Every time I blacked out, and that was every time I drank, there was always that gnawing fear. What did I do this time? Once I found out, many many alcoholics have learned they can bring their bottle to a cheap movie theater and drink, sleep, wake up, and drink again in the darkness. I had repaired to one of these one morning with my, dr- with my jug, and when I left late in the afternoon, I picked up a newspaper on the way home. Imagine my surprise when I read in a page one box that I had been taken from the theater unconscious around noon that day, removed by ambulance to a hospital, and stomach pumped, and then released. Evidently, I had gone right back to the movie with a bottle. Stayed there several hours and started home with no recollection of what had happened. The mental state of a sick alcoholic is beyond description. I had no resentments against against individuals. The whole world was wrong. Was all wrong. My thoughts went round and round with, "What's it all about anyhow?" People have wars and kill each other. They struggle and cut each other's throats for success. And what does anyone get out of it? Haven't I been successful? Haven't I accomplished extraordinary things in business? What do I get out of it? Everything's all wrong and the hell with it. For the last two years of my drinking, I prayed during every drunk 
that I wouldn't wake up again. Three months before I met Jackie, I had made my second feeble try at suicide. This was my background that made me willing to listen on January 8th. After being dry two weeks and sticking close to Jackie, all of a sudden I found I had become the sponsor of my sponsor, for he was suddenly taken drunk. I was start. I was startled to learn he had only been off the booze a month or so himself when he brought me the message. However, I made an SOS call to the New York group, whom I hadn't met yet, and they suggested we both come there. This we did, and the next day, and and this we did the next day, and what a trip! I really had a chance to see myself from a non-drinking point of view. We checked into the home of Hank, the man who had fired me 11 years before in Mississippi, and there I met Bill, our founder. Bill had then been dry three years and Hank too. At the time, I thought them just a swell pair of screwballs, for they were not only going to save all the drunks in the world, but also all the so-called normal people. All they talked of that first weekend was God and how they were going to straighten out Jackie's and my life. In those days, we really took each other's inventories firmly and often. Despite all this, I did like these new friends because, again, they were like me. They had also been periodic big shots who had goofed out repeatedly at the wrong time. And they also knew how to split one paper match into three separate matches. This is very useful knowledge in places where matches are prohibited. They, too, had taken a train to one town and had wakened hundreds of miles in the opposite direction, never knowing how they got there. The same old routine seemed to be common to all of us. During that first weekend, I decided to stay in New York and take all they gave out with except the God stuff. I knew they needed to straighten out their thinking and habits, but I was all right. I just drank too much. Just give me a good front and a couple of bucks, and I'd be right back in the big time. I'd been dry three weeks, had the wrinkles out, and had sobered up my sponsor all by myself. Bill and Hank had just taken over a small automobile polish company, and they offered me a job. $10 a week and keep at Hank's house. We were all set to put DuPont out of business. At that time, the group in New York was composed of about 12 men who were working on the principle of every drunk for himself. We had no real formula and no name. Again, big book's not completed yet. Uh, we would follow one man's ideas for a while, decide he was wrong, and switch to another's method. But we were staying sober as long as we kept and talked together. There, there was one meeting a week at Bill's home in Brooklyn, and we all took turns there spouting off about how we had changed our lives overnight, how many drunks we had saved and straightened out, and last but not least, how God had touched each of us personally on the shoulder. Boy, what a circle of confused idealists. Yet... We all had one really sincere purpose in our hearts, and that was not to drink. At our weekly meeting, I was a menace to, sere to serenity. Though I was a menace to serenity those first few months. 
for I took every opportunity to lambast that spiritual angle, as we called it, or anything else that had any tinge of theology. Much later, I discovered the elders held many prayer meetings, hoping to find a way to give me the heave-ho, but at the same time, stay tolerant and spiritual. They did not seem to be getting any answer, for here I was staying sober and selling lots of auto polish, on which they were making 1,000% profit. So I rocked along my merry, independent way until June when I went out selling auto polish in New England. After a very good week, two of my customers took me to lunch on Saturday. We ordered sandwiches, and one man said, three beers. I let mine sit. After a bit, the other man said, three beers. I let that sit, too. Then it was my turn. I ordered three beers, but this time it was different. I had a cash investment of 30 cents, and on a $10 a week salary, That's a big thing. So I drank all three beers, one after the other, and said, I'll be seeing you, boys, and went around the corner for a bottle. I never saw either of them again. I had completely forgotten the January 8th when I found the fellowship, Uh, and I spent the next four days wandering around New England half drunk, by which I mean I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. I tried to contact the boys in New York, but telegrams bounced back, bounced right back. And when I finally got Hank on the telephone, he fired me right then. What's interesting about that is he wrote to employers, right? One of his recommendations, if the guy's serious, you keep him. If he's not serious, fire his ass. He did it, right? This was when I really took my first good look at myself. My loneliness was worse than it had ever been before. For now, even my own kind had turned against me. This time, it really hurt more than any hangover ever had. My brilliant agnosticism vanished, and I saw for the first time that those who really believed or at least honestly tried to find a power greater than themselves were much more composed and contented than I had ever been, and they seemed to have a degree of happiness I had never known. Peddling off my polished samples for expenses, I crawled back to New York a few days later in a very chastened frame of mind. When the others saw my altered attitude, they took me back in. But for me, they had to make it tough. If they hadn't, I don't think I ever would have stuck it out. Once again, there was the challenge of a tough job, but but this time I was determined to follow through. For a long time, the only higher power I could concede was the power of the group. But this was far more than I had ever recognized before, and it was at least a beginning. It was also an ending. For never since January 16, 1938, have I had to walk alone. Around this time, our big AA book was being written, and it all became much simpler. We had a definite formula that some 60 of us agreed was the middle course for all alcoholics who wanted sobriety. And that formula has not been changed one iota down through the years. I don't think the boys were completely convinced of my personality change, for they fought fought shy of including my story in the book. So my only contribution to their literary efforts was my firm conviction 
since I was still a theological rebel, that the word God should be qualified with the phrase, as we understand him. For that was the only way I could accept spirituality. After the book appeared, we all became very busy in our efforts to save all and sundry. But I was still actually on the fringes of AA. Why, while I went along with all that was done and attended the meetings, I never took an active job of leadership until February 1940, when I got a very good position in Philadelphia and quickly found I would need a few fellow alcoholics around me if I was to stay sober. See that change of I need, right? Thus, I found myself in the middle of a brand new group. When I started to tell the boys how we did it in New York and all about the spiritual part of the program, I found they would not believe me unless I was practicing what I preached. Then I found that as I gave in to this spiritual or personality change, I was getting a little more serenity in telling newcomers how to change their lives and attitudes. All of a sudden, I found I was doing a little changing myself. I had been too self-sufficient to write a moral inventory, but I discovered in pointing out to the new man his wrong attitudes and actions that I was really taking my own inventory and that if I expected him to change, I would have to work on myself too. This change has been a long, slow process for me, but through these latter years, the dividends have been tremendous. In June 1945, with another member, I made my first and only 12-step call on a female alcoholic. And a year later, I married her. His wife's name is Rosa. She has been sober all the way through, and for me, that has been good. We can share in the laughter and tears of our many friends, and most important, we can share our AA way of life and are given a daily opportunity to help others. In conclusion, I can only say that whatever growth or understanding has come to me, I have no wish to graduate. Very rarely do I miss the meetings of my neighborhood AA group, and my average has never been less than two meetings a week. I have served on only one committee in the past nine years, for I feel that I had my chance the first few years and that newer members should fill the jobs. They are far more alert and progressive than we floundering fathers were. And the future of our fellowship is in their hands. We now live in the West. They, they moved to San Diego. We now live in the West and are very fortunate in our, AA, in our area AA. It is good, simple, and friendly. And our one desire is to stay in AA and not on it. Our pet slogan is, easy does it. And I still say that as long as I remember that January 8th in Washington, that is how long, by the grace of God, as I understand him, I will retain a happy sobriety. Uh, what's in, what is interesting also is that he ended up being buried back in, in Maryland, and his, his plot is just a few yards from Fitz Mayo. So they grew up together as, as, as young lads and are actually buried together. And I think I just had one or two other little things I just wanted to highlight. In the um, 12 and 12, Bill does mention um, uh, J uh, Jimmy Burwell's c contribution uh, uh, to, uh, to us uh, on pages, if you wanted to look it up, 143 to 145. 
and uh, his um, date of death was um, 1974. So he basically died about 76 years old, uh, sober that whole time through from the 16th on. And uh, that's all I got.